is astonishing. So here at this local church, we love honoring God. We love remembering him. We love putting him more fully into our minds. And we love discovering more about his will for us and how we can love him and serve him and please him and honor him. Um, Because oftentimes in the Bible, when people grasped what God was doing and promising, they would say things to God like, you are worthy to receive glory, honor, blessing, dominion forever and ever. And that's, we want to have that attitude. We want to see God as being worthy of everything we can give him. Um, So uh, 1 Timothy 5 uh, is what you see on the board. Um, So this deals with uh, widows here eventually. And I didn't didn't do this because of Mother's Day. It just happened to turn out that way. Um, But uh, I've been going through 1 Timothy just every now and again, uh, trying to keep it at least somewhat tight in the midst of other things that we've been talking about. And 1 Timothy 5, uh, basically through chapter 6, verse 2, is all on one principled subject. It's really all about how to distribute and give honor. And honor, living in honor and giving honor, is actually a consistent application that we as God's people are exhorted to make. We're, we're exhorted to live honorably, but then we're also exhorted again and again to also give honor. And we need to understand how to do that because really sin is the, um, sin defies honor. And so we really have to almost relearn and, and recalibrate ourselves. What is honor and how do we give honor? And it really is a discipline. So remember in 1 Timothy, Uh, Paul is exhorting Timothy as an evangelist, but we talked about in the first lesson where I started going through all these things that this letter is not just for preachers or evangelists. It's for a church to understand their purpose and their direction as God's people. What kind of applications should we be trying to make from God's word? What should we be doing with our studies together? What should we be doing in our assemblies? How do we relate to one another? Who should we be? That's what 1 and 2 Timothy and Titus are really for. So these aren't just for for me as an evangelist. This is to be shared. And you'll see that again in this chapter, especially verse 7. Paul tells Timothy, make sure you teach these things. So really, in a sense, like this this is my 1st, 2nd Timothy and Titus. This is my outline of lessons that is like charged by God to be giving and even giving again and again. So 1st Timothy 5, 1 through 16, this will be really a a two-part series with going through these things. And we're just going to jump right into it and start with verses 1 and 2 with honoring brethren as family. Verses 1 and 2, if you'll follow along with me in your Bibles. Uh, again, First Timothy 5, 1 and 2. Do not sharply rebuke an older man, but rather appeal to him as a father, to, y- to the younger men as brothers, the older women as mothers, and the younger women as sisters in all purity. So the way that I'm going to um, teach on these things is going to be really simple. This is going to be a really straightforward lesson, just like making... Um, clear applications of both principle and activity, uh, making applications. And with both the sections I'm going to look at, um, we're just going to start first with principles and then work our way into applications. Um, First thing here is he's telling Timothy, I think, not to exercise some sense of authority like a business manager, uh, also not dominating or domineering. Uh, That's not the way that leadership within God's household works. Um, we address one another as equals in mutual household. Go back to chapter 3 and look at verse 15. Uh, This is going to be an important context really for all of this because households are talked about a lot here in chapter 5. 
But in chapter 3, verse 15, notice he says, But in case I am delayed, I write so that you will know how one ought to conduct himself in the household of God. So we're all members if we are in God's household as saved believers who receive the Holy Spirit. We're in God's household. And I think what Paul's exhortation to Timothy is, you need to treat your relationships within that reality. So again, not as somebody who is exercising some kind of dominating authority over others, which is really easy to fall into. Um, so I'm going to bring up two illustrations um, on this. One, I've been in um, work environments where uh, people were motivated by threats and by harsh, uh, harsh warnings or just harsh urging at best. Uh, and the reason why the environment was that way was because people generally weren't trusted to listen. So the only way to motivate people was really to threaten their job. And oftentimes when I would be talked to that way, it would really discourage me a lot because I would think to myself like, whoa, I want to do a good job here. Like, you know, you don't have to go from zero miles an hour to 100 with like the first, the first warning. You know, because oftentimes to motivate people, they would just immediately threaten your job. They would say, okay, if you're not going to do this this way, then you're out. It's like, whoa, 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 whoa. I didn't know my, my job was being threatened. But again, it, that... W- can easily plant the seed of a lack of trust. Like, I don't trust that you're actually going to respond. I don't trust that there's a gentler way to do this or that you're going to listen. So I'm going to go from, again, 0 to 100 immediately with you. And I think the problem underneath that, again, is it develops a lack of trust that can be hard to perceive but actually can disconnect people in really subtle ways and harm any sense of family or connection that God is wanting to cultivate. Another thing, too, on this, this word sharp rebuke in the New American Standard, your translation probably just says rebuke, and that's okay. Um, But this is the only place in the entire New Testament where this word is used. And it's, it's kind of like approaching someone in a very sharp or arrogant tone, uh, really disrespectful. And I think for somebody younger, like somebody like me, uh, I've actually violated this, by the way. I've actually failed to follow this multiple times. And the second illustration on this that I'm going to use is, is the reason. And I, it's not, not excusing it, but it's easiest to be merciless to people who should know better. Like, if you have confidence, like, this person should be way past where they are. And if you're dealing with, like, fr- flagrant rebellion and somebody who ought to have a sound faith, and you know they know better, it's very difficult to come to that person with gentleness and meekness, and it's very difficult to believe that that kind of person will respond to an appeal. But notice Paul doesn't qualify this, because in God's eyes, honor is not oftentimes, if rarely, if ever, honor is not based on how somebody is living. It's simply based on God's authority, right? So the exhortation of Timothy is no matter Where an older person is, you simply being a younger person need to come to that person respectfully, humbly, and instead of being sharp and arrogant, you need to to make an appeal instead, which can be a lot more difficult and really requires a great deal of self-control oftentimes. And again, I've sinned and violated this. Uh, So not approaching things in a domineering way, but also the second principle we need to develop family relationships that are specifically based in the mission that we mutually have. 
So the idea that we're trying to attain to the hope of our calling and we're trying to push each other there, right? So we're not just trying to have pleasant social relationships together. And it can be, I think, really tempting and really easy to just kind of have that together where eventually we just kind of settle our differences. We really get used to each other's personalities. We've done the work to kind of get over initial interactions. And then at some point we just kind of eat together and talk to each other as if we're just friends in the world. And that's, that's okay. But I think what Paul is exhorting Timothy to see is it must go further than that. It's got to go further than that. So there needs to be a family relationship based specifically in our mission that goes beyond social enjoyment, which is, again, as he's telling Timothy, this is a deliberate discipline. This isn't something that's just going to accidentally, by happenstance, just kind of come to fruition and bear fruit. Timothy was going to have to purposely equip himself with this mission and his interactions, right? And finally, not saying we shouldn't be forthright and open. Not saying we shouldn't be forthright and open. In fact, who are you usually most forthright and open with? Usually when I was younger, my family, we were very forthright and open with each other, but when a guest would come over, it was like totally different. Like, it's very polite. And I remember, I remember one time I had a friend over when I was seven years old. And I got upset with my parents because they were so nice to him. And it was like, why are you guys so nice to my friend? And then I think like that day I'd gotten in trouble. So like I was upset that like I was disciplined, but like my friend was being treated so nicely. And I felt it wasn't, it wasn't unfair, but I felt like it was just being young and immature. And again, the idea is you're very forthright and open with those in your household. So as much as like we can want to be very merciful and kind, that's never to compromise being open and clear. So he's not saying, oh, don't rebuke anybody. You know, like you've got to earn that or somehow like, figure out a way to, you know, go through this maze of thinking to figure out a way you can actually say something that might be hard for someone to hear. That's not what he's saying. He's simply saying, in love and in humility, make the appeal, but be forthright and be open. We're, we're members of, of the same household. And so I think that's, that's difficult, is learning to be forthright, but that, that is a part of this. So some applications. Learning to make an appeal. Um, your translation might say also encourage or exhort. This word is very multi-angled. Uh, it's, it's translated in different circumstances in different ways. But really what I have as a sub-point there, the purpose of it is to motivate somebody else's conviction to almost be like cultivated or to be set on fire personally and to motivate them to want to pursue a goal with their own personal ambition. And the most literal definition of this word is to call to one side. And not like grabbing their collar and like pulling them to your side to call. Like here, join me and let's, let's go on this way together. Um, we'll look at 1 Thessalonians as an example. But this word, when people would approach Jesus, like the leper in Mark chapter 1, he would fall before Jesus and beseech him. It's the same word. So again, he's putting, he's putting it on Jesus' own will. Like it's urgent. I know you can, but you have to make the choice. And I want you to make the choice but I know that I have to win your will for this to be done, right? That's the idea of this word is you're, you're working to win the will of another person in your approach. Turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. Um, this was Paul's approach. We're going to start in verse 6 of 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, but this was Paul's approach uh, to the Thessalonians as an apostle. And just his example in this, I think, is, is really, really encouraging. 
Um, 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, starting in verse 6. Um, Sort in verse 5, he says, For we never came with flattering speech, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed, God is witness. Nor did we seek glory from men either, from you or from others, even though as apostles of Christ we might have asserted our authority. But we proved to be gentle among you, as a nursing mother tenderly cares for her children. Having so fond an affection for you, we were well pleased to impart to you not only the gospel of God, but also our own lives, because you had become very dear to us. Now notice in 9 through 12, that is not at the compromise of warning, of gravity, and of urgency. Look at verse 9. For you recall, brethren, our labor and hardship, how working night and day so as not to be a burden to any of you, we proclaim to you the gospel of God. You are witnesses, and so is God, how devoutly and uprightly and blamelessly we behave toward you believers, just as you know how we were imploring each one of you as a father would his own children, so that you would walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. So notice he was trying to win their will. He's calling them to his side. He was both very gentle among them as a mother with her children, but not at the expense and gentleness of being forthright and open. And so in that family relationship, there was that sense of still, there's a call that we're all striving to attain to through hope and faith. And we've got to take that seriously and motivate one another to see the degree of pursuit that we ought to be investing into that, right? So you see that with Paul's relationship with the Thessalonians. And that, again, is how Timothy is being exhorted to relate to the brethren. So notice the qualification back in 1 Timothy chapter 5 uh, at the end of verse 2. Because he, he notes to Timothy, you know, treat the older women as mothers, which, again, would be close but also very respectful. Um, younger women as sisters. But then he, he qualifies that in all purity. And I'll just say personally, I've gotten in situations where I've been close friends with another um, single female and just trying to keep it friends, um, but without being aware of it, uh, having given false impressions that there may have been maybe a goal to pursue a romantic relationship. And I didn't, I didn't have that goal, but I had, without realizing it, given that impression. So we need boundaries and wisdom. We need boundaries and we need wisdom. Uh, Proverbs chapter 22, verse 3 says, The prudent sees evil. Some translations say foresees evil and hides himself, but the naive go on and are punished for it. Right? So he's telling Timothy, like, be close to the brethren, be close to younger women as sisters, but be careful. All purity. There needs to be uncompromised boundaries with wisdom. One application of this that I think is something I've heard again and again from men older than me who have exhorted me in this. A single man has no business ever being alone with another man's wife. Ever. Has no business developing a close social personal relationship with another man's wife behind his back or even if he knows it. Just not wise. Just not wise. Um, So there needs to be strict boundaries and there needs to be wisdom. The, the wise man foresees evil, not like immediately in front of him, just, you know what? This just is a bad idea. <laughs> this is just not going to go anywhere good, right? One thing on this, it can be easy to think, well, a preacher teaches God's word, studies it a lot, 
So, I mean, if anyone's exempt from temptation, probably that guy. Totally wrong. We've got to know for certain preachers, evangelists, are not less susceptible to common temptation, if anything, more so. If anything. It's a bad, bad situation. When you have a church that almost overly admires, maybe not almost, does, and assumes, you know what, just good. That person's just totally good. And they see him doing maybe some things that probably should be admonished and maybe you're right. You know, I trust him. Sometimes it's not a matter of whether you trust him or not. Sometimes it's just a matter of saying, you know what, what are you doing? (laughs) You really need to change your direction with this. I just want to tell you, please rebuke me. I am not an exception. I struggle with common temptation. And I'll tell you, in personal conversations with brethren, I think we all struggle with feeling like we ought to be so much spiritually stronger than we are, but we know our own weaknesses. And I can tell you, I am very, very weak. All it takes is one day, just one, of me sitting in a coffee shop with my Bible open, and Satan plants a thought, and I say in my own mind, you know what? I'm going to accept this today. I'm going to dwell on this a little bit more today. Game over. Game over. Preachers get involved in sexual sin is they have failed to develop these relationships with their brethren. And they're isolated. They're not close and open with brethren. And I, the amount of times I've heard about preachers and been shocked by who it's been at times getting involved in sexual sin more than any other kind of person I've ever met or heard of. Because there's an unwise sense of ungodly trust that's given or thinking, you know, that person doesn't need to have close, intimate relationships with the brethren. Because again, they read the Bible, they're okay. It's just, that's not right. So, 3 through 16. Take that for what you will. 3 through 16, honoring widows. I'm going to read this whole section, and then I'm going to divide it and split it in half, because there's two main subjects that are being looked at here with this. But uh, the main subject is honoring widows now. Honor widows who are widows indeed. But if any widow has children or grandchildren, they must first learn to practice piety in regard to their own family and to make some return to their parents, for this is acceptable in the sight of God. Now she who is a widow indeed and who has been left alone has fixed her hope on God and continues in entreaties and prayers night and day. But she who gives herself to wants and pleasure is dead even while she lives. Prescribe these things as well so that they may be above reproach. But if anyone does not provide for his own, especially for those of his own household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. A widow is to be put on the list only if she is not less than 60 years old, having been the wife of one man, having a reputation for good works, and if she has brought up children, if she has shown hospitality to strangers, if she has washed the saints' feet, if she has assisted those in distress, and if she has devoted herself to every good work. But refuse to put younger widows on the list, for when they feel sensual desires and disregard of Christ, they want to get married, thus incurring condemnation because they have set aside their previous pledge. At the same time, they also learn to be idle as they go around from house to house, and not merely idle, but also gossips and busybodies, talking about things that are not proper to mention. Therefore, I want younger widows to get married, bear children, keep house, and give the enemy no occasion for approach. For some have already turned aside to follow Satan, If any woman who is a believer has dependent widows, she must assist them, and the church must not be burdened, so that it may assist those who are widows indeed. Kind of an unusual passage, right? Not not one that probably comes up in sermons very often either, but it's still important to understand, right? When it comes to God's word, every section is so beautiful. We should want to know and understand and know how to make applications from every section. 
And again, Paul told Timothy, like, teach this. Like, make sure this is, this is known. So whatever we can get out of this, we need to work to make sure that we're getting what we can, right? Obviously, the uh, subject is 1 Timothy chapter 5. So obviously this is dealing with honoring widows specifically here. You see that in verse 3. Honor widows who are widows indeed is the New American Standard. Uh, and the idea is honoring widows with godly love, but also with wisdom and discipline. And that's what we're going to see as we get into all of this. Uh, 3 through 8, and then bringing it to a bookend in verse 16, the focus is the primary responsibility that God gives is to the individual and the family. So God charges that individuals, if there's a dependent widow, they are charged to take care of that widow. If there's family related to a widow who fails to take care of her in time of need, you look at the warning. It says in verse, uh, verse 8, denied the faith and worse than an unbeliever. The responsibility if there's no family and the widow is totally left alone, if she meets these qualifications of character and godliness, the responsibility then goes to the local church. But, again, look at verse 16. If there's anyone who can take this on themselves, they've got to do it. Whether it's a woman or a man, uh, the charge is most directed toward the individual. And so the, the exhortation, first of all, the first principle is, responsibility. God expects that faith transforms our willingness to be responsible, which brings that note, what does God do with those of his household? Does God give care and attention to people who join into his household who come in? God not only gives them care, he takes upon himself incredible burdens of resource, of cost, of energy, and he does it willingly. And he saves people at a time when the burden is at its maximum. It's not as if God waits until the burden is at its least difficult. When it's at its most difficult, Jesus redeems us into God's household. So God's example, principles of justice and fairness, our parents have taken care of us, they've invested in us and haven't expected repayment. Principles from every angle point to one conclusion. We are responsible for taking care of those in our family who have needs, especially parents. So the rest of the lesson is just going to be making uh, applications. And I put together an incomplete sentence there. So the idea of what the sentence was supposed to say is notice how spiritually uh, busy, oh, never mind, it's not an incomplete sentence, I just didn't put a period. Yeah, there's, imagine a period at the end of that. Notice how spiritually busy the widow indeed is. And the widow indeed, again, it's just a way that the New American Standard has translated the separation between a widow who, her husband has died, and she is a widow, but there's a special widow who Paul mentions meets these certain kind of almost like elder-like qualifications, not, not that she's an elder by any means, but just somebody who's living a very spiritually principled and busy life. And you think about some of the applications that Paul says this person is making. They've learned to devote themselves to prayer night and day. We've talked in the past about how that is the most important discipline of our faith. They fix their hope completely on the Lord. Uh, they've brought up children, been married. They've shown hospitality to strangers. I, that's not easy, right? But she's made those applications. She's brought people into her life, and she's taken care of people. She's washed the saints' feet, done degrading and humiliating things to serve others that 
aren't pressing and urgent, but are just kind and thoughtful things to do. She's assisted those in distress. So she's known brethren and their needs to such a specific point where she quietly looks for opportunities to bring relief in whatever possible form she can. And remember, she has a reputation for good works. So there, there's such a devotion that these things could not be hidden. It's, it's known that this person is doing these things. And they've devoted themselves, again, to every good work. Uh, notice that these are not, none of these applications demand application within an assembly. And previously in First Timothy, I've made the point that when you have women who feel like they're not worth as much as a man because they're not able to do leadership things in front of the church, well, you have a catastrophic problem of misunderstanding the work and the value of work, the nature of God's work. You know, when, when we're trying to shove through each other to get to the front and be seen, we've got a problem, right? This, this is somebody who quietly behind the scenes has become consumed in spiritual work, absolutely dedicated. Um, with this, faith transforms our view of freedom. Before I get into this, you just imagine the kind of discipline it would take for somebody to get to this place, where this is the kind of life they're living. Think about how creative you would have to be. Serving people, again, just like we've talked about with Timothy developing his relationships, this does not happen by accident. This doesn't just develop because you came to meet with the church when they assembled. So far beyond that. This is somebody who's taken an assembly for what it actually is, a way to be equipped for good works and ministry. So this has taken somebody who has decided to really take it upon themselves to get to know the brethren, to look for needs, to look for ways to meet those needs. They've been busy in relationships. They've been bringing people into their life outside of an established sphere. In order to get there, we have to, we have, to have our view of our freedom totally transformed by our faith. Go to Galatians chapter 5. Galatians chapter 5. Verse 13. I'm going to read another verse that's not on the um, projector here, but I'm going to start here. He says, this is Paul writing to the Galatians who were making the wrong application of their freedom. And he says, for you were called to freedom, brethren. Only do not turn your freedom into an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word in the statement, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. The freedom we have equips us to make the most free-willed, glorious applications of God's character. It equips us to make choices that come completely from our own personal convictions of God's grace and his mercy and his character. And the degree of freedom we have to serve others under the new covenant is unlike any dispensation before. What Paul is saying, that if we really think about what we've received, if we think about the Lord and his example, we're not interested in turning our freedom into an opportunity for selfishness and conceit. Illustration of this that I thought about through the week. Um, talked about a widow not giving herself to want and pleasure, which doesn't insinuate anything inherently sinful being practiced. The idea of want and pleasure is the idea of being fully given over to, to personal pleasure. So think about this to you. What does it look like to you if somebody was going to get the most out of life? So let's say, somebody, let's say somebody's husband is dead and they're wealthy. And if you were to think, 
wow, that person is getting the most out of life. Amazing. What would they be doing? Would they be traveling the world? Would they be posting pictures on Facebook of fancy restaurants they're going to all the time? Uh, The way to get the most out of life is the cross. You know, if somebody's traveling the world, there's nothing, there's nothing sinful about that. Travel, have fun, have a good time, right? But what does it really mean to get the most out of life? Look at Galatians chapter 6, uh, verse 14 through 16. But may it never be that I would boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, through which the world has been crucified to me, and I to the world. For neither is circumcision anything, nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. And those who will walk by this rule, peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God. When you just look at that perspective, Paul says, you know what? It's as if the world has just collapsed before my eyes. It's just it's not worth anything anymore. Because a part of the work of our faith, again, is a transformation of what I really view to be freedom. The cross is our liberation. And I wanted to read some lyrics of a song that contains some just emotionally stirring affirmations that are so powerful. It's number 189, When I Survey the Cross. Uh, you don't have to open there. Um, you can just listen. But when I survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died, my richest gain I count but loss and poor contempt on all my pride. Forbid it, Lord, that I should boast, save in the death of Christ, which... Galatians 6. My Lord, in all the vain things that charm me most, I sacrifice them to his blood. Look at verse 4. Were the whole realm of nature mine, that were a present far too small. Love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. Just be honest. Does that sound like freedom to you? It's got to go beyond an emotional stir in the moment of the song. It's got to go to the point where that becomes an affirmation of our life. Um, So, the next point. God's grace, not just God's dominion or his domineering, his grace calls us to be disciplined, productive, responsible. You know, he warns against this younger widow potentially, again, how wisdom perceives danger says the problem is a younger widow could get, into the, could get into the position where she's given over to idleness, which then is going to lead to gossip and being a busybody in other people's affairs. So he says, look, just to solve even the potential of that danger, he said, I desire that younger widows then get married and continue to have children if possible and keep house and be busy and productive with those God-given responsibilities. So grace calls us to be disciplined, disciplined productive, and responsible. The idea of being given over to laziness and just loving, just personal uh, leisure to the point where it's like every opportunity a person has, they're just indulging in, in idleness, is really contrary to grace. And in our culture, that's, that's a difficult pill to swallow because we're given so many ways to waste time, right? And to feel like we're doing something productive at the same time and really we're just not, right? Go to Ephesians chapter 5. Uh, I think you see this detailed by the Apostle Paul again there. And, and again, like the point isn't that you can't, you know, go watch a movie or go travel or just enjoy yourself. Like, again, that's not, that's, that's not the point. So, again, like understand what's being 
warned against here, and I think Ephesians 5 will help, help to clarify that. Because, um, again, it's not, not saying that we can't you know, enjoy life and have good food and go places, but within still the discipline of a life devoted to godliness in a sacrificial and Christ-like way. Um, Ephesians 5, I'm going to read this large section, just to really make one point from it. Ephesians 5, starting in verse 8, it says, For you were, you were formerly in darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. For the fruit of the light consists in all goodness and righteousness and truth, trying to learn what is pleasing to the Lord. Do not participate in the unfruitful deeds of darkness, but instead even expose them. For it is disgraceful even to speak of the things which are done by them in secret. But all things become visible when they are exposed by the light, for everything that becomes visible is light. For this reason it says, Awake, sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Therefore, be careful how you walk, not as unwise men, but as wise, making the most of your time, because the days are evil. Um, does that make you uncomfortable? <laughs> that makes me really uncomfortable. Because if I'm, if I'm really being honest, I, in so many ways, am not making the most of my time, right? But the thing is, Scripture still stands, right? God's call still stands. So I can, the obligation is in my weakness, even the gap of my failure that I perceive, not to undermine truth and say, well, I just don't really want to acknowledge that. Let's, let's move past it. No, it's let's focus on this. Let's, let's humble ourselves and let's work on that, right? So the call is God's grace helps us to be disciplined, productive, and responsible. Think about Jesus. I mean, I don't know, did he sleep? I mean, you see, oftentimes he's like staying up all night and praying. Like, where does he get the energy to do the things that he does. But I think, again, Jesus, as he was growing up with wisdom and with discipline, was, in, was investing himself in godly habits that were keeping him focused and investing his rest and his joy in the Lord so that he could labor with diligence and fervor and perceive what is the most productive way that I could be using my time today. And he was focused, right? So it's dangerous when our lives have no manifestation of discipline. Procrastination is a problem I had so badly when I was younger. And that was only a symptom of a deeper problem, right? I would put off work, I would put off assignments, and I would just over and over again, I'd just get into big trouble with just being lazy. That's a, that, that has to be something we discipline out of our lives, right? It's just a reality. A lot of times children struggle with this. And again, the reality is God is calling us to put to death those habits. And we just have to be real and honest about that. All right. Last thing is, uh, really simple thing is, God's warnings are important. There's five warnings in this section. Five warnings. It says, a widow who's given to wants and pleasure is dead while she lives. Someone's not providing for his own household, worse than an unbeliever. He's denied the faith. Wow. Uh, it talks about how... Um, you know, bearing children, keeping house, and being productive with those things keeps them from reproach. And then he says, hey, reality is many have already turned aside to follow after Satan. He's just like, real. He's just totally transparent about it. And those warnings keep us in reality. Again, a big part of the work of our faith is we've got to be in God's reality. Illustration of this that I thought of this week, you know, when I used to ride motorcycles, sport bikes specifically, there's almost like a, a joke within the community of sport bike riders uh, that people who would ride motorcycles with 
flip-flops and shorts and a t-shirt and no helmet. They were called squids. I don't know where it came from, but like, it's like a common designation for people like that because surprisingly, sport bike riders in their own community really advocate wearing your gear. And the thing is, it's like the reason why that was such a joke is because it's almost like they're not living in reality. Like, you can get in an accident and you're dead for no reason. You know, and, and besides, wearing gear looks really cool. It feels really cool. So it's like, why would you not, why would you not wear your gear, you know? So that, that was the thing is this person was not even paying attention to the reality of what they were doing. And that's the same with our faith when we're just dismissing ourselves and exempting ourselves from being productive in our faith and, and disciplining ourselves to grow in our faith. It's like we've totally lost touch with reality. You protect what you treasure and what you know you can lose. We're not once saved, always saved, right? But do we really live in a way that shows others, I'm aware I can lose this. I'm aware that Satan is trying to take this away from me every single day. And I'm aware that I need to be sober-minded and vigilant and hard-working in my faith. Is that a confession of your life? Because whether or not you confess it, that's reality. You protect what you treasure, and you know there's a danger of losing, right? You think about just having a wallet or a purse, you know? You don't just leave it on a bench and walk away. When I'm in coffee shops, people tell me, say, hey, can you watch my purse? Because they don't just want somebody to just walk up and take it. They recognize a danger. That precious thing can be lost. So we need to take God's warnings seriously and take them to heart And it's in that that we have zeal and fortitude and direction and purpose the way God has called us to. So that's that's a lesson for this morning. Um, If you're not a Christian, to describe the glory of God's household is really difficult when you're outside. But what God is offering in his household is everything you seek and satisfies you in the world but is stolen from God's treasure house without him receiving the glory. Jesus is going to judge the world in righteousness by a righteous standard. And those who have not accepted the call of the gospel will be judged and condemned because God has offered something so valuable that he's calling us to learn to treasure. If you're convicted to accept it today, come forward. And if there's any other need that you have, come while we stand and sing our invitation song.